when I worship the white God, I am worshiping a philosophical and theological perspective that justifies oppression, specifically colonialization. So my only salvation is the rejection of this white God. And again, when I say white, I'm not talking about skin pigmentation. I am talking about the ideology that supports and reinforces white supremacy. Hello, and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome back to season two. I'm your co-host, Gary Allen, and today I want to start with a bit of a story to kind of frame the conversation we hope to have. I have a friend who's a professor at Wheaton University, and she told me the other day that she has been teaching the same class for about 20 years. It's a class on the book of James, and at the end of each semester, she asks her students, who are mostly white, upper-middle-class, Wheaton, good old evangelical kids, to write a paper on the thesis of the book of James. And for 20 years, she has been receiving papers that are mostly the same. Her students typically tell her that the thesis of the book of James is all about faith and works, this tension between faith and works. And uh, that would make sense to me. Well, she went on sabbatical last year. She taught the exact same class to a radically different set of students in Uganda, Ugandan nationalists. And after offering the same readings and curriculum at the end of that semester, she asked the same question. What is the thesis of the book of James? What she got back from her Ugandan students was radically different from the answers from her white evangelical students because they answered the question, what is the main thesis of James to be an indictment of wealth and poverty? So white American students said the book of James is about faith and works. Her mostly African Ugandan students said the book of James is a, an indictment on wealth and poverty. Why such radically different interpretations of this simple book? Well, for one thing, all of us, no matter if we are white evangelical or Ugandan nationalist, we are shaped by, and our lens of reading and interpreting scripture and the culture around us is shaped by our historical, our social, our economic, and our racial backgrounds. We can only see what we've been trained to see. And for many of us who are former evangelicals, we were trained to read the Bible and to understand God from a certain lens. And that lens was from the seat of power. It was a white lens. It was the lens of dominators and colonizers. And when your reading lens of Scripture is from the seat of the privileged or from the powerful, well, you tend to see things that support your own status, and you are almost blind to all the opposition to those things. And I think that's why many white evangelicals really struggle to see the 
large indictment within Scripture as it relates to empires. So, for instance, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a long conversation about a biblical manifesto against the notion of empires, whether it be Babylon or Rome or Egypt, etc., all of those empires are seen as a negative light, and they are seen as being in competition to the kingdom of God. But guess what? As an American, we live in the greatest, largest, most influential empire on the planet. And since we participate in and benefit from our very own empire, we often miss the scathing critiques found in Scripture. And we also tend to create a God that is shaped in our own image, which is why the white evangelical God is primarily a take-no-prisoners, alpha male, or he's the ultimate Theobro, right? But when we move the lens, when we begin to read Scripture and understand our own faith journey from the margins, from outside of the center, we begin to see things that we've always been blind to. We begin to interpret faith from a radically different lens. So if you grew up in poverty, if you were oppressed, if you were subjugated, if you were a victim of colonization, your God and your faith looks very different from my God and my faith. And I think that's why it is important for all of us who are in the midst of our own deconstruction to begin to reimagine what God might look like from the lens and from the eyes of the oppressed. This is the God of the historical Jesus, the God of the immigrant Jesus, the God of the poverty-stricken Jesus, the God who was killed by state-sanctioned violence. This is the God of liberation theology. It is the God of James Cone and Gustavo Gutierrez and several other Latin American scholars who began to introduce us to the God of the underclass, the God of Latin America, the God of kids in cages at our border, the God of the men and women of Buffalo who see themselves as victims of white nationalism. And so today what we want to do is begin to change the conversation or at least change our vantage point as it relates to the God we serve and the faith journey that we are on. And we want to introduce you to the decidedly non-white God of liberation theology and post-liberation theology. And to do so, we're joined today by Dr. Miguel de la Torre. Born in Cuba months before the Castro Revolution, Miguel de la Torre and his family came to the United States as refugees when he was six months old. At the age of 19, he began a real estate company in Miami, Florida, and became active in local politics. And at one point, he was a candidate for the Florida House of Representatives. His company became a financial success, however, convicted by the biblical passage concerning the rich young ruler in Luke 18, Della Torre dissolved his 13-year-old firm and attended Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The focus of his academic pursuit was social ethics within contemporary U.S. thought, and specifically, he studied the intersectionality between religion, race, class, and gender oppression. 
Delatore is one of the most, if not the most, prolific contemporary Latinx religious scholars, and since obtaining his PhD in 1999, he has authored several hundred articles and over 41 books, including one that Kelly wants to talk to him about, the national <laughs> award-winning Reading the Bible from the Margins. Uh, he also published Doing Christian Ethics from the Margins in 2004 and the two-volume Encyclopedia on Hispanic American Religious Cultures in 2009. He presently serves as Professor of Social Ethics in Latinx Studies at Illiff School of Theology, just up the road from me here in Denver. And additionally, he is the founding editor of the Journal of Race, Ethnicity, and Religion. So, Dr. De La Toro, we are honored to have you on the show and can't wait to talk to you about your faith journey and and really faith from the margins. So welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are so excited to talk to you. And Gary Allen's right. I can't wait to talk to you about reading the Bible from the margins as I read it in seminary. But before we get to that, you came to America as a Cuban immigrant. I would love to hear a little about what it was like leaving Fidel Castro's communist regime and how those early years formed your life and your faith. Well, obviously, at a couple of episodes, I don't remember so much the what I left behind, but what shaped my worldview is where I, where I found myself. Hmm. When we came to this country, we lived in um, Hell's Kitchen uh, back in the days when Hell's Kitchen was actually Hell's Kitchen. It was a tenement building, four stories high, one bathroom per floor to be shared by all the tenants. Hmm. Uh, rat, roach infested building. Um, so, so I lived in unbelievable poverty and I grew up in poverty pretty much all my life. Um, I, you know, b believed in the American dream that if you would work hard, you could do it. So at 19, I began a real estate company, um, as a way of lifting myself out of poverty. Um, and, and, and in the process, I ended up becoming very conservative in my political views that in my, and, and, and that became part of it. Religious-wise, spiritually, um, I was raised as a Roman Catholic and as a practitioner of an Afro-Cuban religion known as Santeria, um, which was the religion of the slaves that were brought to Cuba uh, during the 19th century. Um, when I was in my early 20s, um, I became a um, born-again Christian uh, and a Southern Baptist for very deep, deep theological reasons. Um, the girl I wanted to go out with only, would only go out with me. I went to church with her on Sundays. <laughs> so that ended up being my conversion experience. Um, but then, you know, it, it stuck. The, the religiosity did stick. I really enjoyed reading the Bible. I enjoyed um, and this, 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 this um, new life. Um, however, as I grew older, I began to see some of the problems with um, this very conservative, almost fundamentalist way of doing religiosity. And obviously, in my scholarship, I've moved away from that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you moved far away from that. And, and it feels like you, you have this um, intersection of Catholicism, Southern Baptist fundamentalism, and yet you've pursued the road of of liberation theologian as well um was it because of your cultural heritage and the things that you experienced and saw that allowed you to have 
a different lens on safe faith in Scripture than maybe some of us who sit in the in the seats of privilege and power. Um, how did how did that really move you in 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 a more I would say progressive or liberal um, understanding of faith as opposed to maybe a more fundamentalist understanding of faith. Well, let's not forget that I went to get my um, my ma- master's of divinity at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, which is in itself at the time conservative moving towards fundamentalism. Right. Um, and, and I went there. Because, as you mentioned earlier, I was involved in politics. This was the 1980s. And at the time, my thinking was, if I get my MDiv and I become a minister, then I could merge religion and politics and be part of the religious right movement. Um, in fact, when I ran for the, for the Florida House, um, I ran on the Pat Robinson ticket. He was running for president in 1988. Uh, which I got to meet, and, and, and I was part of that movement. So, so there was a reason why I went to seminary. It was so I could become more active in politics um, and be part of this um, Saving America for Jesus movement at the time. But a funny thing happens when you're at a seminary, and that is that they have a library, and they have a whole bunch of books there. <laughs> and you start reading some of this stuff, and it begins to really um, impact your worldview. Specifically, I would go to classes and we would read Karl Barth and Bootmann and, and Brunner and all these great German thinkers. And none of it really made sense to me. It, mm-hmm. You know, it, it just didn't speak to me. So one day I, I went to the library and I started looking for any book that had a Latino name in it, mm. not knowing who Gustavo Gutierrez was or Sobrino or Asman or both. I had no idea who these people were, but they had Latino names, so I grabbed their books and I started reading them. And as I read them, it it, it resonated with the poverty that I grew up with, and it resonated with the struggles of my community as I was growing up. Hmm. And I probably had another born-again, born-again experience in where I began to embrace liberation theology and cast my lot with um, the oppressed of the world, the, the ones that Jesus would say are the hungry and the thirsty and the naked. Mm. And, 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 and since then, my, my understanding, my worldview of spirituality radically changed from having all the answers to just having a whole bunch of questions. Hmm. For our listeners, can you define liberation theology? Liberation theology was a movement of the 1960s that was begun in Latin America. And after Vatican II, um, the bishops and the theologians in Latin America was trying to figure out how do we implement this opening up of the church among our community who are usually very poor peasants and living under military dictatorship. Hmm. What does the gospel have to say to those who are being oppressed? And from that, several things came out, like the um, solidarity with the oppressed, that, the, that, that Jesus was always in solidarity with the least of these. And not only in solidarity with the least of these, Jesus says he was the least of these. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it became a way of doing spirituality from the margins, from, from those who are the outcasts, or, or as um, uh, Paul would write, the stone that is rejected. 
Um, and this becomes the way one enters into any theological conversation. What was happening in Latin America was also happening in, um, in, in the United States with the uh, with, with black liberation movement um, uh, under the, um, the the works of people like James Cone. Um, it was happening in Asia, in Korea with Ming-Yun theology. So it's not begin in one place and spread. During that time, many different marginalized communities throughout the world began to look at the gospel through the lens of the poor and the oppressed. Mm-hmm. So, so this is the way I began to also move in my thinking um, and, and became a liberation theologian. But Important to note, Gustavo Gutierrez says that all theologies are meant to die. So this liberation theology of the 1960s no longer exists in 2020. Hmm. So what we have now is still some of these ideas of liberation theologies, but taking on different ways of, of, of understanding the world around us. Hmm. Thank you so much. That's so helpful. I, I want you to respond to... Um, a, a quote that I read several years ago that that made me realize that my locus or lens of understanding religion was through the lens of empire, especially someone who is the beneficiary and participant of a white Christian empire that seeks domination. And when I read this this quote by a Cuban nationalist and poet Jose Marti, it, it made me realize that I wasn't seeing something. And, and in it, he says, I have lived inside the monster and I know its entrails. Um, can, can you speak to what that being a victim of empire um, has potentially shaped your understanding of Christianity as opposed to being the beneficiary of this Christian empire? Well, I like who you are quoting. I just finished a book on Jose Mati, which got published last year, and I'm finishing a second book on him. He's one of my intellectual mentors. When he wrote that, I have lived in the belly of the beast, is, is, is one way of translating it, it's, mm-hmm. and it's a quote that is very familiar to, to most Americans, they just don't know where it comes from. Right. He wrote that um, as one of his final letters before he died in battle, and, and he wrote it to a friend. And what he was saying is he'd been living in the United States from 1880 to 1895. So for those roughly 15 years, he lived in the United States. In his early writings, he was very praiseworthy of the United States. But towards the end, he began to witness that the United States was moving into the empire business. Um, the Berlin Conference occurred back in the 1884 or 86, if I recall. And the United States, uh, especially under people like Theodore Roosevelt, wanted to build an empire. And Mati was among the very first to realize that Latin America was going to be in danger. So he says in that, in that letter, I have lived in the belly of the beast. I, I, I know the entails. I know what... This, um, this, this emerging empire could do. And then the second part of that quote is, and I, and I am but David with a slingshot. So he uses that biblical reference mm-hmm. that he is trying to, to um, fight this empire that is emerging, but with really nothing but a slingshot um, uh, to defend himself. Uh, another quote that he says, which, which probably fits in here, is... Um, Nuestro vino de plátano y sale agrio sigue siendo nuestro vino, which translates uh, for those who have yet to learn the language of the angels um, <laughs> into we shall make our 
wine out of plantains, and even if it comes out sour, it is still our wine. Mm-hmm. And what he's wow. trying to get there is that, you know, we're going to make our philosophy from our own indigenous roots. And if all we have is plantains, that's what we'll use. And it doesn't matter if we get it wrong. It still belongs to us. Wow. So the way I've been interpreting this and the earlier quote you mentioned is that we will do our theology from our own cultural roots because all theologies are contextualized from someone's roots. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it doesn't matter if it t- doesn't taste good, it still belongs to us. Wow. Thank you for unpacking that. I think it's it's so interesting to hear your views and um, even your background in liberation theology, but I, it's difficult to understand where we are today with evangelical Christianity, especially in the United States and obviously in Canada as well. And I've heard you say Christianity has died in the hands of evangelicals, um, which is a claim. What, what do you mean by that? Can you unpack that for me? Of course. Um, what we say is Christianity today is really an ideology of white supremacy and nationalism. Hmm. It has nothing to do with the Gospels or with the message of Jesus Christ. This is what evangelical Christianity is today. Hmm. Um, In where the belief is not in Jesus, but in Trump. (laughs) In where truth is not in the Gospel, but in QAnon. Hmm. In other words, Evangelical Christianity, quite frankly, and it is not a new phenomenon. This is from, this goes back to the 1940s with with the rise of of trying to merge evangelicalism with um, U.S. capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, Evangelicalism has become an apologist um, and a supporter of the rise of U.S. empire. Therefore, what you know, when I said Christianity has died in the hands of evangelicals, what, what I'm getting at is that, you know, this gen, you know, if we look at the numbers in our churches and, and you know, the, the membership is dropping, people are leaving the church, people are leaving the faith. This newer generation wants nothing to do with church or with Christianity. This death of Christianity is in the, you know, is because of evangelicalism. Hmm. Um, and, and maybe we, let, we need to let the dead bury the dead. <laughs> um, and it's a sad moment we are in. So when I talk about white nationalist Christianity, this evangelicalism, we have to slay that beast. Uh, for we have lived in its, uh, in its belly and we know its entails all too well. Hmm. I guess my question then would be, um, what what's next? I mean, does white evangelicalism can it even be resurrected or transformed, or do we truly need to just watch it die and see what comes out, kind of rises as a phoenix? What is it? Is it worth saving or do we really want it to die and then hope for something better that's going to come next? We are a people of faith in resurrection, but resurrection occurs after crucifixion. Hmm. White evangelicalism has to be crucified. It has to die. 
and then we sit by and 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 hope against the ho- against the hopelessness that there will be resurrection. Hmm. But you know, quite frankly, it already exists. It exists within those communities who have rejected this white Jesus and instead are worshiping the black Jesus Hmm. or the Latinx Jesus or the um, Asian Jesus or the um, queer Jesus. In other words, there were folks out there who are within marginalized communities approaching faith from the context of their communities. So the issue is not so much that Christianity has died. It's the Christianity of white um, evangelicals that is dying. And and, and a quick note here, when I say white, I'm not talking about skin pigmentation. I want to be clear about that. I'm talking about ideology. You have a lot of people of color who are white. Um, So that way of doing faith in Christianity has to die. Mm -hmm. And for white people to get saved, they have to learn how to worship the black Jesus, Mm -hmm. how to worship the queer Jesus, how to worship the Latinx Jesus. Hmm. Wow, I so appreciate that. I really think that something has to shift in our own lives for us to be able to see a different perspective or move toward what once was liberation theology or move toward the margin. For me, that was a story of um, an ordination process that was not favorable to women, which is unfortunate for me because I am one. Um, and that that pushed me toward the margin. I was ready to to challenge my own views. And this is when I was reading your book, which you wrote a while ago, reading the Bible from the margins. Um, in that book, you uh, helped the reader understand that they read the Bible from their own perspective with a story or analogy of the Sabbath. Can you can you retell that quick example? Sure. Um, I think it was Justo Gonzalez who, 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 who said that analogy. And, and he, he was talking about a church that he visited that was made up of mostly migrant people. And, and basically the pastor was preaching on the Sabbath, you know, six days you shall work on the seventh, you shall keep it holy, it shall be a Sabbath unto you. And, you know, most of us have learned that basically, um, you know, we should, you know, if we were to do a sermon on that, it would most likely be something like we should, you know, take the day off. We should be with family. We should worship God. And the focus is on the Sabbath. But the pastor asked the congregation how many people were able to work four days last week. And, if, you know, a lot of hands went up. How many people worked for five days? Less hand. How many people worked for six days? A few hands went up. And then the pastor asked, what does this tell us about a society that prevents us from keeping God's commandment, six days you shall work. Hmm. See, the focus of those with economic privilege is on taking a day off. The focus of those who don't have a job and need a job to eat is on working six days a week. Hmm. So we all approach the Bible from our own social location. And this is called a hermeneutical suspicion. So how am I suspicious of the space that I occupy when reading the biblical text? And what do I impose on the text that is more cultural as opposed to what the text may be talking about? 
Hmm. And if we want to take that analogy one step further, we know that for our stock and our retirement funds to do well, <laughs> we need a healthy unemployment rate of about five to six percent. Because if it's too low, then companies are paying too much money to attract workers, which means stock values go down, right? But here's the thing. Those who are usually in that 5 or 6% disproportionate of unemployment are young black and Latino men. So for our, our economy to function, men of color have to mostly be unemployed. Wow. So our entire economic structure is designed against the commandment, six days you shall work. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah, I, I, I've never thought about it like that. Isn't that, Gary Allen, when I read this book, I, w I was like, oh my goodness, my views are so entrenched in my views and I have never looked mm -hmm. at it a different way. Uh, and I think after that moment and after, you know, my ordination or lack thereof, I think I started lots of things started to change. Miguel, in your life, what has what has evolved and un, what have where have your beliefs changed and your experiences changed and your outlook changed in your own journey? And what has caused that? Well, <laughs> that book was written 20 years ago. And if I was to say right now, I agree with everything that book says, then I have not grown as a human being. <laughs> the purpose of life is to constantly be growing and changing as one comes into contact with new groups and new people and new ideas. Um, some things stay the same. I still love that analogy of the Sabbath, uh, but some things have changed. Um, since I wrote that book, um, I've drank a little bit too much of the post-modernist uh, Kool-Aid. So now I'm a little more interested in how power works within organizations. Hmm. So I'm going to talk about oppression. I need to understand exactly how power structurally works. Um, and I've also been reading and been influenced a lot by post-colonial thought. So I'm, I'm very much into trying to decolonize my own mind. Hmm. And how much of my mind, going back to the analogy of, of, of the Sabbath, how much does my mind still believe that right. without question? Mm -hmm. So I have to constantly be suspicious of my worldview. Hmm. So I've heard you, you you've also written, and I'm going to, I hope I quote you correctly, but you've also written, decolonizing the mind begins with a rejection of the white God. What, what, is that, what does that phrase mean to you? What it means is that when I worship the white God, I am worshiping a philosophical and theological perspective that justifies oppression, specifically colonialization. In other words, when the United States is established, it was through this white God that we justified the genocide of the indigenous people. Hmm. It was this white God who blessed us to kidnap Africans, enslave and rape, and rape them. This white God called us to invade Mexico and take half of their land. Hmm. 
and then through gunboat diplomacy, in the name of Jesus, impose our will on Latin America. So for me to worship this white God becomes my own complicity with the theological and philosophical underpinnings of the oppression of marginalized communities. So my only salvation is the rejection of this white God. And again, when I say white, I'm not talking about skin pigmentation. I am talking about the ideology that supports and reinforces white supremacy. Hmm. And then when you turn away from this white God, what, what God are you turning toward, if you are? I am turning towards the God of the oppressed. Okay. How do the oppressed understand who this God is? So if I want to understand God, you know, Jesus said, going back to the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, Jesus said that I am, you know, what you've done to the least of these, you have done to me. Jesus is the least of these. So who is the least of these in our society today? The least of these is the black Latina maid making the beds at a hotel who is um, transgendered and who has AIDS. Mm. The one that we despise in our community, that's Jesus in the flesh. Or, or she's also undocumented. <laughs> so the one that we despise in our community, that is who Jesus is today. That is who God is today, in the flesh. Mm-hmm. So when I turn to God, that is who in my mind I'm turning towards, the least among us. Wow. All right. So several years ago, um, I read, I don't know, have you read Chad Myers' Binding the Strong Man by chance? I have not. I'm sorry. But I'm okay. familiar with Chad Myers' work. Yeah. Okay. So so I read that book. It's a political understanding of this very subversive Jesus. And um, it was probably the first time in my life that I recognized – the, this least of these Jesus, this person who is a brown, poor, colonized individual who was the victim of state-sanctioned violence and persecution, who was an immigrant and refugee himself. And this was the Jesus that embodied everything that I was not and everything that I could not see. Um, and it was a very subversive, radical Jesus. And and I feel like your version of I think you've called it badass Christianity is is somewhat linked to that. Um, what, what what is badass Christianity? And was was Jesus really a badass? And if so, what what does that even mean? Yeah, uh, badass Christianity is making a whip and and chasing all the bankers out of the temple. Badass Christianity is saying truth no matter what happens, even if it means death. Hmm. Um, It is a radical implementation of the gospel message. Um, We really don't have that because Christianity, as I mentioned, um, is the apologist for white empire. So when I talk about 
embracing this badass Christianity, I am talking about literally rejecting this white nationalist Christianity and, and, and implementing a faith that can literally turn the world upside down. Hmm. I like it. You live in Denver, Colorado. Like I live just down the road from you in Colorado Springs. I mean, we live in the mecca of of white Jesus, white God, Republicanism, evangelical Trumpism. Uh, do you get pushback from that at Ilif or and or even in your your public or private life for pushing this non-white God? I live strongly believes in academic freedom, which I am tremendously grateful to them. As long as it is scholarly, they will protect um, academic freedom. That's not to say that I have not had some pushback from the public. Um, Just to give you an example, last month I was placed on the professor watch list for oh my goodness! For being anti, I don't know, anti whatever Christian or anti white, um, and also I've gotten last month a whole bunch of death threats and um, a lot of um, um, articles about about me being a heretic or how mm-hmm. I, you know I should get fired or whatever. So the right wing media has had me on their crosshairs for a while. Um, which which is uncomfortable, right. um, but basically for saying the things I just said in your show, mm-hmm. right? You know, you could take what I said in the show and in the show and 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 and, and cut little um, snippets out of it and spin things to show that I hate white people and I want you know I think one of the articles says I wanted to commit genocide on white people, you know <laughs> that kind of stuff, and it's like well. They didn't listen to what I was saying because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a pacifist. <laughs> but the point I'm getting at is, yes, when you when anyone basically stands up against the white nationalist Christian supremacy and 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 cause it for what it is, they will, you know, there'll be an attempt to silence them. Um, And quite frankly, if the person happens themselves to have white skin pigmentation, they may even get more um, um, harassment because they'll be seen as traitors to their race. Hmm. Right. We promise not to cut up this interview and make you sound bad. Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> we won't do yeah. that to you. No. So, so it, you you mentioned earlier that liberation theology had kind of worn out its um, cycle and life cycle. When you look to the future, maybe even particularly here in the West, what is next uh, from a theological perspective? Yeah, Gustavo Gutierrez is the one that said. Um, you know, I don't believe in liberation theology. Um, I believe in whatever the poor believe in. All theologies are meant to die, which I think was tremendous wisdom, that all theologies are contextual to its time period. 
So while obviously liberation theology continues to influence my thinking, we live in a different context. So as I look into my crystal ball, which is what you're asking me to do, and see where we're going, um, I would say that the voices of the global South that have been silenced and ignored and, 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 and ridiculed as primitive are the voices that are going to be, cent- uh, are going to be centralized in any future theological thinking. In other words, what does it mean uh, to listen to the, to, to, to the subaltern mm-hmm. and be influenced by her thinking, in my own thinking? Right. It also means a very critical self-reflection that this Christianity that I claim to be part of is probably responsible for more deaths in the world than any other ideology that ever existed. How do I reconcile with that? I don't know. Seriously. I, I don't know. And I, I've been thinking about that as well. I mean, I was on a walk with my my wife the other night and I said, is Christianity itself even worth saving? Because when you do look at the the weight of, of human history and the ills that have been um, launched upon the world through Christianity. I mean, we, we seem to be some of the most violent uh, tribe of people on the planet. Um, uh, why, why are you still a Christian and is it even worth continuing at this point? And, and, and I don't want to play semantic and say, well, I just follow Jesus. I'm not a Christian because right. I, I can't divorce myself from a history and a worldview that, that, that I've been part of now. You know, it, it, it's impossible. Um, but how do I deconstruct? How do I decolonize this faith attempting to understand the message of Jesus? And rejecting everything else. Um, and, and this is why I, when, when we talked earlier about decolonizing the mind, I'm not just decolonizing my mind from a Eurocentric way of looking at the world. Hmm. I'm also decolonizing my mind from a Christian way of looking at the world. How do I look at the world through other faith traditions while at the same time holding on to my own faith tradition? And that's, a, that's not an easy task, one which I will not, never complete and die still working on trying to do that. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that answer. I was going to ask, a lot of your, your academic work has been, um, well, it's been vast, but you've focused on religion, race, class, and gender oppression. What, what do you want to say about gender oppression? There's a lot to be said about gender oppression. Oh, I'll stay um, on. I'll stay on the call as long as as long as you have. <laughs> I want to hear all your thoughts. One of the arguments that I have been making, and this is not something that I, well, let me take a few steps back. There is nothing I could say about gender oppression except how I am complicit with gender oppression. Hmm. In other words, I could never speak about any community that's oppressed. Uh, 
without really only talking about how I'm complicit with their oppression. In the same way, you know, you all can talk about the Latinx community's oppression without really only talking with integrity about how you're complicit with our oppression. Right. So, okay. so it goes all the way around. Yeah. Right. So number one, how am I complicit with oppression, with, with gender oppression? It's the way I've always approached this topic. And the argument that I've been using, and, and again, this is just this isn't just me. I'm I'm learning this from many feminists and Latina uh, and womenist writers is that all forms of oppression really begins with gender oppression. Mm-hmm. That my attempt to subjugate the woman into a passive position is the same methodology I use to subjugate the poor or the darker skinned Latino or the African-American or the queer person into a passive position so that I can dominate them. Mm-hmm. There's a certain sexual violence of the domination of the other. Yeah. So if I am truly interested in dealing with racism and classism, I have to pay attention as to how my complicity with gender oppression operates. Hmm. I appreciate that. I think, it, yeah, it's a, a really necessary way of looking at it. I guess I would ask why still in 2022 are so many people still s- signing up for a white patriarchal evangelical experience? Well, it's it's back with a fervor, right? I mean, it's it, and um, growing like it's not yeah. going anywhere. So when we say it's dead, it's it's not. It's very alive. Yeah, and now they're saying the bad parts out loud. Like it, <laughs> it seems like it seems like there's a, a a like a yes, let's do this. There's two things I think going on. Uh, first, on the political, then I'll mention something the philosophical. Right. Politically, this white nationalist. Christian supremacy seemed to have been dying. With the election of the first black man, it was like maybe <laughs> there's hope. I mean, maybe we're right. moving in a new direction. That was the promise. Right. The backlash, or should we say the white lash, was <laughs> the election of a misogynist white supremacist. Right. In other words, it was like this was. The last, the last straw. We have to keep the White House white. <laughs> and in that process, there is this movement to make America great again. That is, to make white males great again. Yeah, mm-hmm. no thanks. With everything that comes with it. Um, the the misogyny of the 1950s. Not that the misogyny of the 1920s were any better, but, you know, there was some movement (laughs) in the right direction. Um, The racism of the 1950s, the the, the the homophobia of the 1950s, the xenophobia of the 1950s. This is what will make America great again. And there's an embracement of it Mm -hmm. with, with no shame. Yeah. Whatsoever. 
So that's what's happening politically, I think. Um, so yes, Roe versus Ray will be overturned. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe get, you know, that using the same logic for overturning Roe versus Ray, you're going to probably over also t- uh, overturn uh, the right to marry whomever you want. Right. So, so, so you really are, you know, really are in a very interesting political time. Hmm. Philosophically, I've been influenced lately by feminist philosopher uh, Lagones. And, and, and one of the things that she, she writes about is that our entire idea of man and woman, this whole Western concept, this binary concept, was imposed during the colonial process. Hmm. And, where, and, and where literally only white women can give birth to humans. Because Indian people and black slaves could not give birth to humans. And in many of these societies, women were leaders of those society. It was not a binary um, hierarchical arrangement. But the imposition of this Eurocentric binary hierarchical arrangement is a philosophical construct that we have all adopted for the last you know, millennium probably. And of course, it finds its roots in Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the problem with, it, with that is that now when we're talking about how do we move away from that, we're trying to move away from, from a worldview that defines humans as only male-female with each gender having certain powers and certain rights and certain um, godly um, intent of subordination so that this has been so ingrained in us for, for so many centuries that we may move a little bit away from it, but like a rubber band, it's going to snap us back. Hmm. So, so in, a, in a very real way, there's a certain hopelessness to this. Yeah, well, yeah. I, and maybe I, I don't want to necessarily end on hopelessness, but, but, but <laughs> I, I do have kind of one. I know I said earlier, like, okay, I think that was my last question, but like, this is this is really troubling me. I mean, it, we said earlier that white Christian evangelicalism is dying, and yet I, I feel like these assholes are winning. Like this move toward authoritarian Christian nationalism, we are on the brink of bringing Trump back and establishing a a white Christian nationalistic authoritarian form of regime that seems to not want to go away. And, and, and that is my fear is, is it really dying or are we setting up a dictatorial um, way of political and social reality that now has, you know, the new Fuhrer in charge. I, I, what do you? I know I ask you to look at your crystal ball, but that is my fear. And I think it's a well-justified fear. I mean, I'm a nationalized citizen. I have had talks with my wife of what happens if this government decides to take away my nationalization. Right. What happens then? Because any rights that is given 
can be taken away. And as we're seeing right now, right. You know, the rights of, of a woman controlling her body was a right that was given. It was an inalienable right. It was given. And because it was given, it could be taken away. Um, the right of of of, of uh, equal of, of equality in marriage was a right that was given; it could be taken away. Hmm. Um, but to your question, I, I believe, yeah, it, it, this this evangelicalism is dying and needs to die. And when I say it's dying, it's because the future generation want nothing to do with Christianity and less to do with evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Thank God. What is surviving? I think what, what, you're, what, what you're pointing at that's surviving is an apartheid ideological system. In other words, white supremacy in South Africa back in the, in the 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s was a minority, hence apartheid. It was a minority view. Right. The vast majority were, were Africans, were black. So the question is not that evangel- white nationalist evangelicalism is growing is that their power is growing hmm. unchecked. Interesting. And as it grows, they will continue to use the very systems that get them elected to dismantle <clears throat> those very systems. When right now, even though in, you know, in the last elections of the last decade, the va- every election, Democrats have won, you know, more Democrats have voted for members of Congress than Republicans. Hmm. Uh, Republicans still control the House or the Senate the majority of the time. In the last, since Bush, with the exception, Bush, um, George, uh, George Bush Sr. back in the 80s, 88, mm-hmm. no Republican won a presidential election except Bush's second year. Hmm. But because of our electoral college system, a, a slavery um, part of our constitution, um, because of the electoral college system, we've had several Republican presidents right. since Bush senior. Um, you know, two of them obviously contested. And because of that, we have the Supreme Court we have now. So we already have an apartheid system, is what I'm saying. Wow. The question is how much stronger that system is going to, to get. Mm-hmm. And in an act of, of, of shameless self-promotion, um, at the end of this year, early next year, I have a book coming out called uh, Resisting Apartheid America. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. A badass Christian response. Oh, man. We, we Can't will wait definitely... to read that. Yeah, exactly. So one, we're going to read it and we will have you back on the show if you don't mind to, to talk about that. I would look forward to it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Dr. De La Torre, I, I know you have to run. You're heading out, uh, jumping on a plane to head uh, across the pond. And I just want to thank you so much for your words, your wisdom, and mm-hmm. your incredible ability to articulate this present moment that we are living in and the choice we have to double down into this white God or to reject it and move toward uh, the least of these. Um, for our listeners who want to know more about you, where can they find you online and, and some of your, your most recent work? I do have a website, um, www.drdr, 
MiguelDeLatore.com. And I will put that in the show notes and uh, we'll hope that our listeners find you and continue to be impacted by your scholarship and your wisdom. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for having yeah, me. Absolutely. Thank you so Thank much. You. I appreciated the conversation. This was really great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.